I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nini's Treats, N-E-N-E-S, Treats, ninistreats.com, an amazing family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina. You can buy their delicious crumb cakes at ninistreats.com or on goldbelly.com. Nini's Treats, you won't leave a crumb. I'm here today with Rebecca Schrag Hirschberg, PhD, who's the author of The Tantrum Survival Guide. Tune into your toddler's mind and your own to calm the craziness and make family fun again. A clinical psychologist and founder of Little House Calls Psychological Services, which helps kids and parents face all sorts of challenges, Rebecca has written many helpful articles about early childhood issues. She's taught at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and has led many seminars and workshops for parents. A graduate of Yale University with a PhD from the University of Virginia, she currently lives with her husband and two young sons in the New York area where she was born and raised. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Rebecca and I um, went to high school and college together, so this will be more of an informal, probably, tone than some other podcasts. But. I keep thinking if our, like, 16-year-old selves could see us now, their minds would be blown. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like you had the coolest room in high school. I, like, begged my mom to remodel my room based on, like, your bulletin board. Do you remember that? I do remember yeah, that. And what was crazy. funny is that I had, like, the least designed. It was like, I don't know, buy some stuff and I, put it on the wall. I just, I know. <laughs> but it was like you were, it was like the coolest. You were, like, the coolest. Oh, guy. thank anyway. you. Anyway. Um, so your book, congratulations, Thank so you. awesome. Um, the tone of your book is so great, like as if I'm just sitting here chatting with you today. Um, even the first sentence of your book, it sets the whole tone. You say, hi, I can't believe you pulled it off. You found a few minutes of downtime to start this book. So immediately when I read that, I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be great. I feel understood. <laughs> you get it. In fact, then you go on to say just that. You say, I get it. I do. I too am a parent. I have two little boys 21 months apart. Did I mention I get it? <laughs> so it's so refreshing. There's so many experts out there, but it's refreshing for an expert to be sort of so disarming like that and just like be like, yeah, I'm in it with you. So tell me how you ended up writing this book in the midst of running a psychological practice and raising two little kids. Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And it's actually a good segue from what you just said, because it's like this unheard of thing that happened to me, which is that I just got a cold call from an editor. I was on maternity leave with my second and I We'll never forget because it was the fr- I was exhausted and you know unshowered and all the rest and I was deciding to go for a walk which as you know is like this big decision and I got a call from an unknown number that I didn't accept and I listened to the voicemail and it was an editor at Guilford Press saying that she had read some of the articles I'd written and particularly been impressed with exactly what you just said which is that there was an expert voice and a mom's voice that were very seamlessly kind of interwoven and asked if I'd be interested in writing a book. And I, of course, assumed that this was like some quack because who does that, you know, and I Googled and I was like, oh, no, this is the real deal. And I really was hesitant to do it because I was so tired and so busy, but I've always loved to write. And I am smart enough to know that opportunities like that don't come along every day. And so had a real conversation with my husband about whether we could pull it off because, of course, all these decisions involve family things shifting. And yeah, pulled it off. Part of it, I think, was like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> but I did it. It was some late nights and some jiggering. But yeah, it's done. Awesome. So exciting. Thank you. So let's talk about tantrums. Let's do it. Ready? Let's okay. do it. So why do kids have tantrums? <laughs> Go. Go. Take it away. 
Why do kids have tantrums? Well, kids have tantrums because, in, I mean, there's so many reasons, and the book obviously goes into it, but at its most basic level, a tantrum is an expression of an emotion that's too overwhelming for kids to process without having a tantrum. So where tantrums tend to emerge They can be a little earlier and a little later, but roughly between, say, 18 months and five years when part of the brain that can do things that prevent us from having tantrums, like exert our judgment, plan, express ourselves, is not fully developed. And what is fully developed is the emotional part of the brain, which we're born with. And so when kids are calm, you see them have various skills that they're developing. But once they're emotional, the emotional brain kind of hijacks the thinking brain, and they're off to the races. And and adults have that as well. We're better at controlling it. But the times when we kind of lose our minds is the exact same thing. It's that our emotional brain isn't really kind of talking to our logical brain. And so you may know that what you're upset about makes no sense whatsoever, but you're still there. And that then, never happens to right, me. Of course not. No, Zibia, <laughs> you, you know, abs- even when you were younger, never. <laughs> okay, but then in your book, you say you can't totally stop the tantrums but you can help manage them. So. Yeah, and that's a really important... I'm sorry, did I just interrupt no, you? No, no, it's just you also said that it's you don't want to extinguish them altogether, that there are some benefits to tantrums. Yeah, well, tantrums are normal, and they're expected, and they're happening at a time when little kids are figuring out who they are and how the world works and how relationships work and how feelings work. And most kids, and I'm going to say most because I would never say every single one, but most kids have tantrums because it's part of a developmental trajectory that's healthy. And so I take objection when articles say, you know, 10 quick ways to stop tantrums once and for all. It's like, that's just not going to happen. And you wouldn't want it to. When I've seen rarely a child or a family in my office where the child is having no tantrums, there's often a sign that something else is going on. There's like some real anxiety or things don't feel safe at home. You know, it's like, it's like somehow there's a military school atmosphere. And so yes, kids in that extreme circumstance can possibly hold it together, but you don't want that. Right. Um, does that answer that question? Yeah, that's okay. good. That's great. <laughs> All right. And you said um, there were five possible red flags that signal um, that tantrums may be a sign of something to worry about. Yeah. So, and I always hesitate to to talk about them simply because parents freak out. I mean, I, I will, and I'll tell you what they are. But I, before I say them, I want to say that one of the things I say in the book that's, I think, extremely important to remember is that there really is no formula. The idea that like, if your child has three tantrums a day and one is more than an hour, but two, you know, it's just false that that's going to be a way to figure out if there's something to worry about. Generally, though, the research has shown that there's five things to look at when you're looking at, are these normal developmentally appropriate tantrums or potentially correlated with a later mental health diagnosis, and they are um, frequency. So is your child having 10 to 20 tantrums a day over 30 days at home or some fewer number that I'm not remembering exactly out of the home? Duration, are they generally or typically more than half an hour? And I'll have parents say to me, you know, oh my gosh, yes, I remember this one time my kid like lost his mind for an hour. And I always say, right, you remember that one time, right? It stands out in your head because that was so bizarre. (laughs) Most of the time tantrums are, you know, between two and eight minutes. um, And that's what ideally, quote unquote, you want. 
Then there's self-injury. Again, nothing to freak out about. It is completely normal for kids to hit themselves, pinch themselves, bang their head into the wall, mostly because they're kind of looking at you at the same time and they know that that's what's going to make you come running. If your child is repeatedly scratching him or herself, biting him or herself, really doing that kind of extreme self-injurious behavior, that's often something to worry about. Similarly with aggression, the fourth one is aggression toward other people, which I, it's the same caveat, right. totally normal to a certain extent. Yep. And then the last is self-soothing. So can your child come down, you know, with your help, perhaps with a teacher's help, with a caregiver's help, but is it incredibly effortful to get your child to calm down every time? Um, again, I don't want any parents listening to say like, oh gosh, last week I could barely calm my kid. It's like, right, this all happens to all of us, which is why I hesitate to make it a formula. But I think it's important for parents to know that if those five things are ringing a bell, it may be worth seeking professional advice. And then that person may still say there's nothing to worry about, but it's just those are the flags that signal let's get somebody else in here to take a look. Okay. I always like to go to the worst case scenario. So thanks for, thanks for covering <laughs> that up, friend. Um, okay, so your kid's having a tantrum. It's eight minutes. For instance, this morning, my son didn't want to put on his socks. How do you know the difference between, okay, fine, our socks that important, it's pretty warm out, but not giving in, right? Like once they start tantruming, you can't change your mind. Isn't that the whole deal? No. I, okay, I mean, yeah. <laughs> he ended up not wearing any socks. That's, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's delightful out. I just came in yeah, from, right. I'm not wearing any yeah. socks. <laughs> I... That's a misconception, I think. I, w- I mean, again, in part it's a misconception because it's a quote-unquote easy rule. It's like, oh, once this happens, never do this. And I think it's easy to say that and to have parents say like, okay, now I know what to do, but it's not realistic. What you want to do and what I think the book emphasizes is get to a point where you can pause in that moment and make a thoughtful decision about whether you want your kid to wear socks or not. So so you're not saying, ideally, and again, if you did this this morning, then you're still a fantastic mom. <laughs> but it's not like, you know what, fine, forget it. Just don't wear socks. We're not wearing socks. You know, it's yeah. more like, okay, let me pause for a second. Yeah. Think about whether this is a battle I want to fight. Think about the pros, cons, whatever. And then say, okay, I thought about it. Here's the deal. I give the example um, in, the, <laughs> in the book, and I will... Because I talk to parents about exactly this. Each scenario is a choice point. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make or break your kid's general behavior by one incident. Do you want to trend toward consistency? Of course. That's why we've all heard that rule. Of course, ideally, most of the time, once your kid is tantruming, you're not giving in. But that doesn't mean that if sometimes you do, for various reasons, you're kind of messing everything up. And I always give the example, my oldest, Henry, he must have been about three, and we'd sort of talked about how he could only call me in in the middle of the night if like, there was an emergency and we'd defined emergency. But at one point he called me into his room about two in the morning and said there was no more ice in his water and he wanted more ice. And my first reaction was, that's insane. I'm not, no way. It's three in the morning. I'm not going downstairs to get you more ice. You can have lukewarm water at three in the morning. And he started to have a tantrum and I was able to, and this is not always the case, but I was able to pause and think like, what do I want to do here? Do I want to really toe the line on this and like really not give in and not give him the ice on principle? Or, and this is the path I chose, am I exhausted? Do I have a long day at work tomorrow? Do I, I don't know if this is something he's going to do every single night, 
if he does, then I'll deal with it. But right now, I just am going to choose the path of least resistance and get him the ice the way that you did this morning and told him not to wear his socks. And that's fine. And then you'll see if that happens every morning, as it gets colder and colder, then you'll say, you know what, it's time for me to draw the line on this one. But we need the data to know if towing the line in that way makes so much sense. Does that? Yes. It was like a long answer. No, I like it. <laughs> no it actually took some pressure off because every time I don't do what I think I'm supposed to do in a tantrum situation and I give in a little bit, I feel like some sort of failure. Like, oh God, I was supposed to, you know, let this tantrum just derail the whole morning and whatever, but I don't have time for that right now. And we yeah, have to get to school. And, and nobody does. And there's no, and again, tantrums are emotions and every tantrum is different. And, and the book, I hope, you know, takes a complicated topic and simplifies it a little bit because, you know, you can say, is he having a tantrum because he doesn't want to wear socks? Yes. Is he also maybe having a tantrum because he didn't sleep great last night? Fine. Is he having a tantrum because he didn't spend time with you over the weekend and is missing connected? Like, ideally, you want to be able to, and this is really just takes practice, but in the moment, kind of anticipate what's going on with your kid. Mm-hmm. And if your kid is not a kid who tends to most of the time engage in these behaviors as a way of pushing you to give in, Mm -hmm. then you don't have to worry about it as much. There's no one size fits all for this stuff. And, um, and I think in this age of like, you know, punchy headlines and, and so on and so forth, people try to make it seem like that's the case and for good and bad, it's not that simple. And what about the advice to just ignore tantrums? Because sometimes I end up doing that. I know that's not necessarily in the book, but... Yeah, it is. Is it? (laughs) It is. Okay, you can ignore them? Yeah, I talk about something called strategic attention, which is, and, okay. and parents. Yeah, that, was so, that was so well said that I, you know, yeah. I didn't just say. <laughs> I'm glad you missed that point entirely because it means my book is really well No, written. no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I, it just means we, because I'll say, we, I'll, t- I'll start talking about strategic attention and parents will always say to me like, oh, this is not about attention. My kid gets so much attention and don't worry, you know, and it's not about that. It's about when we give our kids attention. Right. So if we, and I see this like as it gets colder, not today because your son didn't wear socks, but as it generally gets colder out, I'll see that all the time with like put on your jacket or put on your shoes. If a child doesn't put on their jacket, they suddenly get 10 more minutes with you. Mm. They get, you put your phone down, you stop paying attention to the siblings, whatever it is. And like, you are just focused on getting them to put their coat on. Whereas if they actually put their coat on the first time you ask, maybe, maybe if you're really tuned in, you'll say, thanks so much, but then you'll go on to something else. And so it ends up rewarding them to not do what you want. If that's what you feel like is going on as a general trend, then those are great tantrums to ignore. Okay. You know, come put your coat on. No, I'm not going to put my coat on. Okay, you let me know when you're ready. In the meantime, I'm going to hang out with your sister or I'm going to return some emails. I say, like, take out your phone. As a, We all take out our phones when our kids are being terrific because we're like, oh, I have some time. I can return some emails. The best thing to do is kind of shift that and take out your phone when your kid is starting to be, again, not having a full-on tantrum. I would say once your kid is having a full-on tantrum, it's best to maybe say something empathic, something kind before totally ignoring but in the in the lead up to it, when they're starting to kind of potentially get there, and the other thing is, I'm talking a lot, so sorry. But no, keep the, going. <laughs> that's why you're here. I want, I want to hear what you have to say. The other thing that I think is so important is that ignoring doesn't have to be mean. Like ignoring, ideally, doesn't come from a place of, you know what? Fine, I'm just not going to pay any attention to you until you blah blah blah. 
you can communicate and it's so valuable to communicate that you are on the same team with your child. You're just giving them some space, right? right? So you're saying, you know what? It really is time to put your coat on. I'm sorry you're having a hard time with that. I, you know, I get that you really love t-shirts, whatever, (laughs) you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write some emails and, you know, I know you can pull it together. I know you can do this. I know your body knows how to calm itself down. So that way you're still doing the desired thing, which is pulling away the attention. So you're not reinforcing the tantrum, but you're not adding this other, element of like, I'm angry at nice. you. I'm shaming you. There's something wrong with this. You're, you're messing up our whole morning, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Okay. It's a much simpler, just remove the attention. The other morning, my daughter didn't want to put her coat on. This is exactly what you're saying <laughs> on the way to school. And I was like, you know, you should put it on. It's cold outside, whatever. She's like, I don't want to wear my coat. Just don't. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, these poor little kids, like we tell them what to do all the time. If somebody told me what to do as much as I tell my kids what to do, I would want to like run away and never come back. So I was like, you know what? Why don't you hold on to your jacket? And if it's really cold outside, you'll probably put it, want to put it on. So she's like, okay. So she holds on to this like, cute little jean jacket she just got. And we go downstairs and we walk two blocks and she goes, looks at me, uh, mama, <laughs> I'm cold. And I was like, oh, good thing you have your jacket. And she just put it on. And now we like don't. Yeah. Don't and you're, that's such a great point. I mean, so much of, of being with little kids and the book talks is seeing the world through their eyes. It's like, she's a human being. She yeah. wants to decide. And there's certain things like, no, she doesn't decide when she gets to go to bed or every day what she's having for breakfast. But to the extent we can build in choice and autonomy, it goes so far. And then particularly in this current climate, not to go down the political route, but to say something like, yeah, you know your needs, you know your body, you'll know when you get cold. Right. really emphasizes a message of like, yeah, you, even at this young age, you know yourself better than anybody, even mommy. Yep. And you can have, again, some right. <laughs> autonomy over some of these decisions, particularly ones that have to do with being cold, which by definition, you can't possibly know yeah. if she feels right. that. Yeah, maybe she wasn't cold. Right. Yeah. And then last night, not to keep talking about my kids, last night, she didn't want to have salmon. And she was like, I'm not going to have dinner. I'm not. And I was like, okay. And frankly, sometimes with four kids, if one kid is having a thing like that, I just don't have time to deal with that. I just wanted to get everybody else mm-hmm. to sit down. So she went off. She ended up drawing this whole like picture of herself. And then she wrote the word mad and then her name and then Which came back amazing. to show us the picture. And and then uh, I just let her go off and like do this thing. And then we, I ate with all the other kids. I just didn't, I, it's not like I chose to not pay attention. And I was thinking to myself, if this was my only kid, I would be up there being like, come to dinner. Now it's dinner. Come on, don't do this. I can't take this, you know, yeah. but I just couldn't. I like didn't have the luxury of doing that. And then by the time we were all finishing, she came back in, showed us her little mad sign. And then she just like walked over, sat down. And she's like, oh, this really is good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and so it worked in your favor because ideally, even if she had been your only kid, it sounds like that was the intervention that That worked best. And it sounds like that's exactly what I was just describing in terms of taking away your attention, but not in an an invested way. You didn't really care (laughs) or have time that she went upstairs, but that was the perfect message she needed. It was just like you're pulling away your attention in this case because you had to pay attention to the other kids. But it wasn't it was just in a way that communicated to her, like, as you just said, go do your thing. And then she was able to, within that space, first of all, do something incredibly adaptive, which was write out her feelings and and write the word and express how she was feeling, which then allowed her to come to the table and eat. Yeah. But then I feel like, don't you feel like there's so much second guessing in parenting? Like whenever I make a decision, I want to like, in my head 50 times, I'm like, was that the right decision? Like what message am I sending to the other kids? Like now is nobody going to come to the table? Does she always think she gets to choose? Like, is this going to happen every single night? Right. And oh that's my gosh, it, right. this is it every single night. And then I freak out. Yeah, know? yeah. And that's 
First of all, that's parenting. Okay. So yes. So and, but parent. second all right, of all, those were you gotta beware those always and never words. Like that's what I was talking about yes. with Henry with the ice in the middle of the night. Like I could have easily gone down that path. Well, if I get him ice tonight, he's gonna want ice every single night, and I'm never gonna sleep full through the night again, which is a different thing. But yep. um and that didn't happen. Yeah. And if it had happened, I would have dealt with it. Like the book is kind of scattered with um, common question and answers. And this is one. It's like, how do I know when it's okay to give in or not? I'm second right. guessing myself all the time. It's just a choice point. It's one point in time. And to the extent you can remember that. And then afterwards, if you want to reflect on it in a, in a helpful way, great. But not to beat yourself up and say like, well, now that I've done this, we're always going to be like this or no one's ever going to eat or... Because the message that you're sending to your kids, quote unquote, is ongoing and all the time. And the only times you beat yourself up about are those those incidents. But there's a million times during the day you're sending them wonderful messages by just saying, hi, how are you? How was your day? You know, and so it's just when, when we're faced with a behavior that we don't like, it's one choice point. And we make a choice. And then depending on how that goes, we make another choice the next time. And, and then again, if you notice, wow, every time my daughter doesn't want to eat, she's reacting this way, then you have enough information to maybe say, okay, well, what can I change that might change the pattern? But until there's a pattern, you're just dealing with one point in time and there's no right or wrong answer most of the time. There's just an answer that you pick and choose and then keep going and see where it leads you. I love that. This also uh, sort of dovetails with the whole section you wrote called Parenting that Inadvertently Reinforces Tantrums. And then under that you write, yep, you read that correctly. You can close this book now because at the end of the day, it's all totally your fault. Okay, I'm kidding with that last line. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah, well, because parents come into my office and, and they feel like it's all their fault. And it's we're all just doing the best we can. And I hope that the book, you know, there's a line in there that's like, while I'm writing this part, you know, my younger kid is over in the in the corner, like hitting his head with a spoon or something. You know, it's like, it's like, and yet I'm on deadline and have to write. You know, I mean, we're all just doing the best we can. And it's about these large, we, we nitpick ourselves so much. And we think it's about these micro things. And it's not, which is not to let everybody off the hook. I mean, I wrote a whole book about different things you can do. It's just to say that one of the things that hurts us most is that level of self-criticism and um, beating ourselves up. All right, try to work on that. <laughs> um, you write that when you're talking to a parent, you listen for language like, he won't let me or she makes me. How do, you know, what do you do for people who may fall victim to this? Not that I necessarily know any of it. Well, it's just about how you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. So you could say, you know, my son didn't let me put on his socks this morning or my son wouldn't, you know, made me mm -hmm. let him go to school without socks. Or you could say... My son got, you know, just to yourself in terms of how you think about it, my son got really upset about wearing his socks this morning. And so I chose to not make him wear the socks. It's just about realizing that you have agency and that this little creature is not the one running the show. And that doesn't mean you can't choose on many occasions to, to do what your child is requesting. A big theme in the book is that there need to be equal balance of kind of love and limits in the home. So by all means, you're setting limits. You're just doing so in an intentional and thoughtful way where you know, okay, this, so back to the ice, <laughs> Henry's 2 a.m. ice craving. I said out loud to him, and I don't think it went in in a way that he understood, but it was really therapeutic for me and I think a good habit to get into. I said to him, you know what? I'm going to get you ice and I'm going to get you ice because I've decided that's what's best for me and for our family. 
again, it was three in the morning and he's three and there, he, you know, he wasn't like, oh, okay, you know, he, whatever. But the point is, it's not that he made me go get him ice at two in the morning. And the more I can shift my mindset to saying, you know what, he woke up at three in the morning, he was upset, he wanted ice. And then I chose to get it for him because I weighed the different options, helps us feel and be kind of the, the ones who are actually in the big picture in charge. So it's not so much about never giving into those things. It's about just the semantics of it and, and the thought process that often lies behind those semantics. Got it. So what, what is your take on timeouts? If they start to have a tantrum, can you be like, this behavior is like unacceptable, I'm giving you a timeout? Or, or what if the timeout then leads to a tantrum? Do you just leave that? Like, So timeouts are one of the most widely misunderstood behavioral techniques out there. And there have been huge controversies over them. And in short, <laughs> um, and I'm going to try not to get on a soapbox here, and I talk about this in the book. So so timeouts are extraordinarily well-researched techniques that that work as a very basic behavioral tool, which is to say children, generally little children, love attention more than anything in the world. And so one really good consequence for extinguishing a behavior is to take away your attention in a planned way. That's all a timeout is, is it's a timeout from attention. And a timeout from attention only works if the rest of the time, generally, in your home, there's a positive, warm atmosphere where your kids are getting attention, right? So when people talk about, well, I do a time-in, it's sort of like a time-in should be kind of generally how things are. And a timeout is a timeout from attention, and it works for discrete behaviors. So behaviors that you can talk about ahead of time. So you, And you talk about it with your kid, even if your kid is three. You know, in this house, there's a timeout for if, you know, if you try to hurt the dog, you know, there's a, there's a timeout. And that's an established thing. And so when they go, and they agree to it, and when they go to hurt the dog, you say, oh, remember we talked about this, that's a timeout. And then a timeout happens in a very specific way that's been researched, which is that it's out in the open, on a chair or on a mat, no toys or books or whatever while they're doing it, and it's timed, so it's a minute per age per year. Timeouts don't work for tantrums because it's not a discrete behavior. You're basically saying, I'm giving you a negative consequence. I'm taking away my attention because you're upset. A tantrum is just what being really upset for a little kid looks like. And it doesn't work because you can't talk about it in advance or plan it or really say with a good conscience, like every time you get really upset... I'm going to put you in timeout. It's just not the healthy, good message. What you can do is is take away your attention, as we talked about, in a non-emotional way and non-timeout. You know, they don't have to go to a chair. They don't, you know, and then, but again, it's in an empathic way. Like, wow, you're having a really hard time with the fact that we're only getting one cookie. And I get it. Cookies are totally delicious. I know you can calm yourself down. And so I'm going to go in the other room and I can't wait to read a book with you when you're calm or that's, you know, so again, it's that same idea. You're still taking away your attention, but you're not giving this negative consequence for an action that they've taken because a tantrum, at least when it starts, is it's just an, a, 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 man, a behavioral manifestation of an emotion. If the tantrum then includes aggression, like hitting or whatever, I think you can give, t- then it's where it's, it's about the specific kid and it's about, I don't think you are going to do anybody any favors by trying to give a timeout in the middle of a tantrum. Uh, you know, and we can talk about these specific scenarios or not, but 
But to the extent that you want to think about the discrete behaviors that happen as part of a tantrum, potentially in certain circumstances, those respond well to timeout. But I still don't think within the context of a tantrum, it's the best way to go. Okay. Does that clarify? Because that's, I'm, t- it it's, so, it's so widely misunderstood and debated in a way that's not even what it was intended. You know, it's, right. it's frustrating. It sounds like timeouts are sort of more like take a moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, timeout has become, I think, like, go to your room, close the door, like, stay in there until, right. you know, this is right. your punishment. Go to your, like, kind of right. like when I was growing up, like, go to your room. Right. And they were never meant to be in the room. I right. mean, in your own, I mean, and that's, and for, because among other things, once a kid realizes they're in their room and, like, is, like, they're going to just be like, sweet, I'm in my room. Well, that's sort of what I always felt yeah. when I'm very, <laughs> I was like, in your room. I was like, I love my room. Right. There's no place I'd rather be. I'm going to sit and read and like, Right. A timeout is a timeout from attention for a set amount of time. You can set a timer. Right. If kids, if kids can't understand time, which most can't, you have a visual timer mm-hmm. like they have in a lot of preschool classrooms where they can see the time going down in like the pie slice. But I think there's a real difference just to, to just uh, what you just said there. It's take a moment yeah. in the context of a tantrum. But it, but in the context of, like, you see one of your kids go over and smack your other kid, which also happened. I mean, yesterday we were in the botanical gardens, and, and my little one was walking, and my older one just came up behind him and shoved him. Mm-hmm. That's not a tantrum. Right. And that's potentially a great example of something you could give a timeout for. Yep. And that would be the, quote, unquote, like, formal timeout. You know, you right. know what? Now we're going to go sit for three, you know. Yep. So those are really distinct, and, yeah. and they both can be useful in different circumstances. When you were saying that part about pulling out your phone when you want to sort of take the attention away, basically, in the book you said that you listened to Van Morrison's Into the Mystic as a way to calm yourself down when your child is tantruming. And I was just, I mean, I feel like you played me that song. You introduced me to Van Morrison in high school, and it's still, like, now one of my favorite songs. Like, Kyle and I danced to it at the wedding. Like, it's, like, one of my favorites. So anyway. Um, oh, that warms my no, heart. No, it's true. I, I, like, I was sitting there, like, smiling, like, flipping down. I was like, oh, my God, she even put it in the book. Like, after all this time, like, our mixtapes and everything. Anyway. Um, but so, so your kids started a tantrum and are you really now like going into iTunes and like, are you put? are you, are you listening to it out loud? Are you putting in headphones? Like, <laughs> let me, let, you're like, give, walk me through, walk me through, walk me through how I do this. So before we get to the nitty gritty, <laughs> the context is that tantrums are interactions. They're not, and the book goes a lot into that, that it's family dynamics and interactions. Your kid is not having a tantrum in a vacuum. Your kid is starting to exhibit some behavior, which then causes you to exhibit some behavior and they and you and they and and it takes it takes two to really, really amp up. Not always, but the best thing you can do as a parent in a tantrum situation is to stay regulated and stay calm. And there are different ways to do that. You can feel both your feet on the ground. You can take a deep breath. You can close your eyes and remember the first time you held your child as a baby, you know, when they like exploded your heart. There's different ways to do it, but it's so important because there's this great expression that I did not make up, so I can't take credit for Be the thermostat and not the thermometer. You're there to set the temperature, not to let your child set the temperature and you just measure it. So one of you has to get calm and regulated for the other one to feel better. And sadly, your kid's not going to pick up that task. (laughs) And so music is one way that for me can really help. And so I think most of the time I do it frankly, when I feel like the atmosphere is just ripe for a tantrum. Yep. Like after a long day, we get home from preschool and daycare. I've had a tough day. I'm exhausted. The last thing I do is I feel like doing is giving my kids dinner. One of them is already complaining that it's a bath night. You know, then it's like, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to put on Into the Mystic. They're going to want me to put on Paw Patrol (laughs) soundtrack, but I'm going to, you know, I need that to get myself to a better place so that this whole evening goes smoother. Occasionally, though, what you said is true, which is that my kid will actually start to have a tantrum. And I've had clients that say this works too. And you do go into iTunes because you say, I need, I really need to get myself to a different place to be able to see this person as anything other than like the most annoying person ever. And the way I'm going to do that is with music. It's senses. It's all, it also can be eating something that you, you know, just going like a lot of times it's about you know, I, you get so frustrated with your kid and then you realize you haven't had a sandwich for six hours. You know? right. yep. <laughs> so it's just getting yourself back in your body, back in your senses in a regulated place so that then you can have that pause that we talked about where you can be more thoughtful and intentional about how you want to approach a situation. There's this other song called Let's Be Still. Do you know that song? Like, you I can don't. get lost in the moment forever. <laughs> I'll stop. Go for it, no, no, no. <laughs> Anyway, it's really good, but it, that's like my go-to song if I'm like having a nervous breakdown myself because it like... It's called, Wait. like, let's be still. Anyway. There's also, um, you can go the opposite route and put on, like, a dance song. Right. You know, sometimes when my kids are making me crazy, you, I just blast a dance song and we all dance. And it takes, because it's that same energy right. of, yes. like, that excited, like, uh, energy. Yeah. Except instead of, you know, channeling it toward my kids, I'm, like, really dancing. And they're really dancing. And usually they look so cute that then that shifts my right. mind. You right. know, and again, it's about shifting that. It's being the thermostat. I'm not going to come in and get you know, sucked right. into your drama that you pulled your hair and you took your Legos and whatever, I'm actually going to come in and put on dance music and change the whole tone because I'm the parent and I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last question, what is the best piece of parenting advice someone has given you? Because you give everybody else so much advice. That's so great. The best piece of parent. I mean, it's, I, I would say, and I talk about this a lot, that it's, that it's not direct, um, parenting advice, but I often think about, well, two quotes I was going to say. One is, I think, Marianne Williamson when she says something about how the way to change the world is by changing how you interact with your child. So that, and not each individual interaction, but I really feel like if we can all start to be more empathic with our kids and see them as people and deal with emotions in a healthier way, we can change the larger scheme of things. And then and then more directly, there's a Maya Angelou quote that I'm not going to remember, but it's something like, people will forget the words you say, people will forget where you were, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And I think about that a lot with my parenting, particularly when, as you said, like when I'm in a cycle of beating myself up about something I did wrong or said wrong, it's like, well, what... What can I do now so that my kids remember how I'm, you know, you can go back, you can apologize, you can have a snuggle, you can just, I want my kids to feel overall, not every second of every day, we're all human, but overall, how do I help them feel loved, seen, heard, understood? And that helps me be less critical with the exact words I choose in any given situation. Awesome. Well, that was great. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for giving me some extra little tools for the toolbox of parenting, which uh, is the most important (laughs) toolbox to carry around these days. And uh, um, for coming on Momstone. No, I love, thank you. Thank you for doing this amazing podcast and for for having me on here again, as if if our younger selves could see us. Um, (laughs) But yeah, this this has been a real treat. So thank you. Thanks, Reeves. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been brought to you by Nini's Treats. Nini'sTreats.com, available also on goldbelly.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.